0: Let's take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. I'm going to read it verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the Word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever. Grant us, Father, the Holy Spirit to open our eyes that we may see Christ in the Scripture and feed on Him in our hearts by faith. Well, it was C.S. Lewis who invented it. By it, I mean the expression. And by the expression, I mean the words chronological snobbery. Here's the original quotation. Why, damn it, it's medieval, I explained. For I still had all the chronological snobbery of my period and used the names of earlier periods as terms of abuse. So even today, you could say something is medieval, like the way a session meeting takes place is medieval. That's not a good thing to say, and I wouldn't say that, by the way, just in case the elders were listening at that moment. I don't think there's any more chilling example of this than that of the self-proclaimed enlightenment, labeling the most productive period, the flowering of intellectual life in Europe, the Dark Ages. It says more about the Enlightenment that they dare to call it the Dark Ages. As more modern scholars have been discovering, the accomplishments of that period are such that they have abandoned this expression altogether, except to use it of other periods the dark ages. And then there's L.P. Hartley's famous words in The Go-Between, the past is a foreign country, they do things differently there. There is a prejudice, isn't there? From our perspective, looking back, we consider that everything that came before us must be inferior to what we have today. People's brains were obviously smaller. People's intellects were obviously less able than ours. I mean, Greek philosophers, the great theologians of the church and so on of the past, they're nothing compared to the pygmies we have today. I think Christians should be the very last people. To buy into the idea that newer is better and that everything that is in the past must be inferior to what we have in the present. The author of Hebrews has been teaching us that. In Hebrews chapter 11, in order to show us what it is to live a life of faith today, that is, in our day as well as in his day, he reaches back further than his time period, way back to the very beginnings of history. He takes us right back to Adam and Eve and their family. He takes us to the history of Israel, people like Abraham and uh, Isaac and Jacob, people like Moses and others, in order to illustrate what it means for us today to live the life of faith. They are the ones who show us what it means to believe God, and they demonstrate what it's like for us today to serve God. Now, all of that's Presumed, if you will, by the time we get to chapter 13, verse 7, when he says, Remember your leaders. He's referring here to the past leaders, people who are dead now, people who have gone to glory. Later on in, in verse 17, he will talk about present, current leaders. But here he's talking about people in the past. They're no longer on the scene. They've finished their earthly course. They were pastors. These leaders were pastors in the church. And they were those who'd been set aside to teach and guide and lead and go before the fellowship of God's people. And he has three lessons for us. He says to these people, remember your leaders and consider their work. That's the first thing. Remember your leaders and consider their work. Look what he says. These are those who spoke the Word of God to you. We're being told to bring them to mind, to to remember them. We can visualize them in your head if, if you look back over your life Perhaps some of them are still alive, but he's he's talking in particular about those who are no longer with us. He's saying they've finished their course. They're no longer here, but I want you to remember. Remember your leaders. Bring them to mind. Remember the impact of their life upon you. Now, let's Take a moment to spell out the kind of leaders he has in mind here. He's talking about those whose particular business in life, whose main occupation in life is to speak the Word of God to the people of God. These are the pastors of the churches. This Word of God has come from God, communicated by God was communicated to previous generations, so the writer has told us. It was spoken to the fathers by the prophets. It was spoken in these last days by the Son, that is, by God the Son who has come in the flesh and through the apostles has been conserved, protected, and passed on to our generation. This is the deposit that the church has been given by God. You find this deposit in Holy Scripture. The sacred Scriptures are God's Word written. And uh, that Word has been providentially, uh, prov- uh, been protected by God over the years. It was given to the church. It is the written account of that special revelation that comes from God. And that's what he's referring to. These leaders spoke to you the Word of God. It was the Word of God. When they spoke it to you, they were preaching it. They were preaching it to the church. And as one of the Reformed confessions says, the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. It is the Word of God to you. And you remember, you remember sitting in church at some point in your life, and you knew that the Word of God was coming directly to you, that what was being said at that moment was not being said generally to the air, was not a message for the multitudes. It was a message for you where you sat at that very moment of time. It came from the lips of people who are now dead. They've gone to glory. But that Word, you remember it. You remember when it came to you. Perhaps you were converted that night. Perhaps that night you were challenged about some sin in your life that you had to put right. Perhaps your conceptions of of God and of what God was doing in the world and in your life were wrong, and that night they were corrected, or that morning they were corrected by the Word of God. The task of these men was to deliver the Word of God and to speak it to you. And it was the very Word of God. Now, why was that important? Why was it important that you should be in church on the Lord's Day and in that context hear the Word of God spoken to you? The answer of Scripture is this, that the preaching of the Word of God is the only ordained means, the only ordained means by which the church is, exists, is fed and is perfected by God the very existence the very life and the very blessing of the church depends upon it being spoken to by the word of God that's why the apostles who were acting pastors of the church in the earliest days of the church devoted themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word that's why they delegated the management of money and the care of the needy to the deacons to deal with while they focused on the ministry of the Word. They, they understood, to use the language of the Apostle Paul, that when they were preaching the Word of God, this was not simply the Word of man. This was not human opinion. This was the very Word of God. When they sent out preachers, When when the Apostle Paul, for example, in Romans chapter 10 is talking about how it is that the church is formed, how it is that people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and are able to say Jesus is Lord with their mouth and believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead, how does that happen? Paul says it happens because God sends out preachers. They're sent by the church. To proclaim the Word of God. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. That is by the Word of God preached. For how shall they hear unless someone preach to them? It is by means of the Word of God spoken that men and women come to faith, are established in faith, and are perfected in faith in this life. You ask me what God's strategy is for the upbuilding of the Christian or the edification of the church, I would say it is this. It is the preaching of the Word of God. Now, this speaking here was speaking directly to the church because God is the ultimate speaker. God speaks. Right in Genesis chapter 1, there you find God speaking, a word John chapter 1 tells us what that Word was. The Word was Jesus. Jesus is the expression of the mind of God who is, that is implemented by the work of the Holy Spirit so that God the triune is in action whenever the Word of God is preached. And in preaching, the God who is invisible, immaterial, and inaudible, because He doesn't have larynx, so He doesn't have a voice, as it were, uses a finite human instrument, that is a human voice, to articulate in public, in the hearing of God's people, what God wants to say to the church. That's what preaching is. It's God making space for himself, for creatures to hear in a creaturely fashion, God's word to the church. It's absolute, It's awesome, and it's the preacher's job to declare the whole counsel of God, enabled by the Holy Spirit, that we might understand by the Spirit what the will of God is, that we might by the Spirit prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God, that, that we might learn about the manifold wisdom of God, that we might be delivered the mysteries of God, the mystery which is Christ preachers are told, aren't they, to preach the Word. That's their job. Preach the Word. Don't stop till you die preaching the Word in season and out of season, when it's good times and when it's bad times, when you've got a lot of people, when you've got a few people, when people are responsive and when they're unresponsive. Preach the Word in season and out of season. Because behind the Word, why do we call preaching of the Word the Word? We call it that because behind the spoken Word is the Word. The Word that was with God. The Word that was God. The Word that created everything. And the Word that became flesh. Because when you hear the Word preached, you hear the Word speak. The Word that is the very articulation of God's will is addressing the church. Behind the Word is the Word. God the Son is present by the Spirit. But there's a word here not just about the actual act of the speaking. There's a word here about about the, the response of these people, you see. Consider He says, your leaders, those who spoke the word to you, you you heard this. You responded to this. Jesus refers to this twice in in the Gospels. On one occasion in Mark chapter 4, Jesus says, take heed what you hear, what you hear. What does he mean by that? You're to pay attention to what you're listening to the hearer has to pay attention. Am I, am I hearing the Word of God? Is what I am being taught coming out of the Bible or coming out of somebody's own experience or coming out of somebody's own uh, philosophy of life? Or is it in the Bible? Is this what the Bible says? Is, uh, is, is this talk that I'm listening to informed by Scripture or by public opinion? take heed what you hear. But Jesus said in another place, take heed how you hear, how you hear. When Paul was uh, ministering in Thessalonica, and he writes to them about that time that he spent with them, he, he, uh, he encourages them because of the way they received the Word of God. He says, you received it. You received it, not as the Word of man, but as it really is, The Word of God. When Christ gives His Word to His messengers in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 to deliver to the churches, Christ sends His message through the messenger, through a created finite messenger to the churches. And each of the letters that He sends to these churches, the, the message that is to be preached to these churches, at the end of them, the Lord Jesus says, Whoever has an ear to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, what kind of church growth did the apostles want to see? When you read the Gospels, when you read the book of Acts, for example, what does church growth look like? Well, here's how it looks the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, it says the Word of God continued to increase. The Word of God increased and multiplied. The Word of the Lord was spreading. The Word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily among them. Church growth is measured by the extension of the Word of God, the proclamation of the Word of God to men and women. So, how should we personally receive the Word of God? Well, the Bible says we should receive it in faith, believing it to be the very Word of God. So, God is speaking. Therefore, I believe it. The Bible says we're to receive it with meekness, that is, with humility. Because sometimes the Bible, when it's being preached, kind of punches us a little bit, throws us down, sometimes wrestles with us wrestles with the demons in our hearts, wrestles with the questions in our mind. And we need to humble ourselves under the Word of God. We must allow the Word of God to rule over us. We're, We're to receive the Word of God with prayer. That's repeated over and over again in the Scripture. Prayer and the Word of God go together. Why is that? Because prayer prepares the spirit to receive the Word of God. Prayer is what? realigns the intelligence and the mind and the heart to be responsive and receptive to the Word of God. If you come to church on a Sunday morning and you haven't prayed about coming, then you're not as responsive and receptive as you're going to be. If you've not asked God the Holy Spirit to open your eyes and and to open your ears and open your heart to receive the Word of God as it comes to you, what are you going to get out of this? It'll just bounce off you, as it were. Prayer and receiving the Word go together, like love and marriage and a horse and carriage or whatever it is. These things go together. The Word and prayer go together. And we are to be sure, the Scripture says, to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. That is, let the Word get deep inside. Let it pervade every aspect of who you are. Let it hit all the high points of your mind and your emotions and your desires and your aspirations and your experiences and your feelings and your intellectual search. Let the Word of God shape, mold, and affect everything about who you are as a person. That's what it means to receive the Word of God. You remember your leaders who spoke to you the Word of God. You see, the Word of God is the confession and conviction of the church. It is the only means of communicating the mind of God and the grace of God to God's church. It's what makes the church exist, gives the church life, and brings the church blessing. Consider your leaders. Remember your leaders, consider their work. Remember your leaders, imitate their faith. Look at this next phrase. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, here he's talking still about those who spoke the Word of God to us. Those who were our pastors, those who came and ministered amongst us, those who not only preached the gospel, but who enacted it through their faithful way of life. They lived the life of faith. The writer in chapter 11 has already given us an insight into what that looks like. There he gives a record of the saints of old, how they suffered, how they died how they found a place in the city of the living God. That's the story of the believer. That's the story of every believer, how God found them, how they lived, how they suffered, how they died, and how they find a place in the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, this word that's used here, to imitate, means to copy, like somebody making a copy of of a drawing or a painting and they're trying to make an exact copy, and they're they're giving attention to the detail. That's the kind of image that we have before us. We are to look at their lives, and we are to learn from their lives and emulate them. So what does it mean to imitate their faith? I think you can take that in two directions. First of all, you can think about the faith to which they held— that is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That is, the faith that they believed confessed and taught. So it's a body of truth, you, you might say. And that's a great thing, isn't it, to believe, to believe their teaching insofar as they were faithfully, as they faithfully taught the word of God. We should be grateful for that. We should be grateful for pastors who have stood for the truth and defended the gospel. Now we think of our own church here. And here I think of Dr. Boyce's stand for the inerrancy of the Bible, one of the great things that he did in his life for a ten-year period to put together the best minds we had and to bring to the fore within the evangelical community and the Reformed community in particular the great inerrancy of Scripture— That was a great legacy to the church. So now it's almost assumed now. We don't have to fight that battle now because that battle was fought. Let's be grateful for those who've gone before us for our battles for us. We live in the light of their faith. But there's a second way that we could take this. I think we're meant to take both, by the way. But there's a second aspect to it, not just the faith to which they held, but the faith by which they lived. The faith by which they lived. William Gouge, an old Puritan. Well, actually, he was only in his thirties when he wrote this, but because he's a Puritan and he lived in the 1600s, he's old to us, isn't he? He wrote this, faith is a mother grace, a mother grace, a breeding grace, in case you didn't get the idea. All the acts of God's ancient worthies are produced as acts of faith. In other words, what he's saying is this faith is the mother of every good thing that you do. Faith is the mother of every act of kindness, every act of heroism in the gospel, every act of service. Faith is the mother of it all. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But faith, if you like, is the energy behind all that we do in our labors for other people. Faith marks out the course of our living. It shapes our life. It shapes everything we do and everything we suffer. It's by faith that we're able to glorify God in all that we do. Now, there's a sense in which all of God's people, the past, present, and the future, we all share the same Faith. faith, Our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. We we have it as a gift from God. We trust in Christ for our salvation. We share that same faith. There are some, there have been some in history, there are some today in our church who have what I would describe as a spiritual gift of faith. They have a quietly but quite definite ability to believe God for quite exceptional things and in an exceptional manner. They don't boast about it. They don't blow hard about it. But nonetheless, as a pastor, I know people who have that gift of faith. But we all have faith, so we can all learn from this, from this lesson. We're to imitate their faith. In other words, we can learn from those who've gone before us whether they're still alive or whether they're alive in the presence of God now. Paul said, for example, on one occasion, you became followers of us. They were alive when they were there, and they became followers of Paul, and they imitated the way of life that that the apostle was still living at that point. In Hebrews, the writer urges us to be followers of those who through faith and patience inherited the promises. Now, there he's talking about those who have left this life and are in the life of heaven, the much greater life of heaven. James, for example, when he's talking to Christians, could say, remember the prophets. The prophets are long gone, but he says, remember the prophets and their life and learn from them. Now, one of the other things that uh, the writer to the Hebrews has said is that we are primarily, of course, to imitate Christ. And there's a great picture of this. In Song of Solomon, chapter 1 and verse 4, the church is talking to Christ, and the church says to Christ, draw me, and we will run after you. Draw me, and we will run after you. Now, those words, me and we, in that change of number in these two pronouns, me and we, teach us. That as we follow Christ, others will be stirred up to follow him with us. That's the picture here, you see. These pastors in the past followed Christ in such a way that we were stirred up to follow Christ with them. Now, there's a remarkable thing. We're to follow Jesus, and we're to follow others who follow Jesus. Because He uses human instruments, human models. Sinners say, by grace, just as we are, He uses them in order that we might learn. We know from Scripture that the, the great heroes of chapter 11 were not perfect. I mean, if you read chapter 11, you think they were. In chapter 11, all you have a record of is, in faith, they did this, this, this. By faith, they did that, the other thing. You, you might get the, the idea that what the writer is doing there is a kind of hagiography of, of these people, making them look better than they really were, so, you've been at one of these funerals, and you've known the person who's dead, and you've sat there, and you've listened to the person giving the eulogy, and you've thought to yourself, you really didn't know this guy at all. I mean, <laughs> or you've been in the place where I've been many a time. One, one time in particular, when uh, the person who was being buried was a gangster. The church was absolutely packed. We'd been made aware that other gangsters Probably the, person, the people who killed him were also in the room. And there were private detectives, or, or there were undercover detectives in the room as well. And I had to speak the eulogy at this man's funeral. So I got up and I said to him, If Jimmy could talk to you today, this is what he would say to you. And I went to talk about hell and heaven and the gospel. I'm absolutely sure wherever Jimmy was, he would be wanting me to tell people, there's a heaven and a hell, and uh, there's a way to heaven, and there's a way to hell, and you better get right with God. Anyway, that was just a caveat there. I don't know what led me into that. Uh, It's you. You always do that. You just pull me in all kinds of directions. But here's the thing. The, the, The writer to the Hebrews knows very well that you know the story of Abraham. He knows very well that you know the story of Moses. He knows very well that you know that these people were not perfect. And what he tells us, what he does is exactly what he tells us to do there in chapter 13. He says, imitate their faith. And we've been looking at this. Why should we imitate our past teachers? Well, one reason is that to keep up the supply of such people in Christ's church. If we follow them, then maybe we'll be a bit like them. I mean, Elijah was one of a kind. Elijah's ministry was outstanding. Elijah was a great prophet of Israel. And, uh, and when he was snatched up to heaven, people must have been devastated that he'd gone. But God had left an Elijah who followed in the spirit, an Elisha rather, who followed in the spirit of Elijah. So, that whatever one God takes, He leaves some others who, who have learned from their life and who carry on something of what, of what they have done in their lives. And in this way, God is glorified in all the generations. In this way, it goes on from one generation to another. You see, these people that we listen to, these people who taught us, served God and did their duty in their generation, they like us were mortal. They like us had but a short time here in this world. And before they left us, they served their generation. Back in the year 2000, Dr. Boyce came to the pulpit for the last time to make an announcement to the congregation about his illness. And uh, I was listening in London. I listened To that statement, I think six times that morning. And in that statement, he taught his people how to live and how to die in faith as a believer. He left this church and the Christian world a profound legacy in that last. Message that he gave the church. Here was a man whose faith went with him to the very end. And facing death in the face, he expressed to the church his faith in God. If you haven't listened to that or read it, please do look at up along online. It's one of the great legacies to the Christian Church Universal and one of the greatest things that he did in his life. These are the people about whom the writer is speaking, our pastors who preached the Word of God to us, who died in faith, who even by their dying in faith left us a legacy. And the writer is saying, imitate them, learn from them, study them. Listen to what they said. See how they face life and its vicissitudes. Imitate their faith. But there are some caveats or cautions that I need to add as we look at these words. It says, consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. That's quite a specific command. I want to emphasize how specific what the writer says here is. You see, as we look back at the past and we think of people who've been before us, some of them are extraordinary. We're extraordinary people with extraordinary gifts. And whether we like it or not, we look back at them and we think about their extraordinary gifts and abilities that God used for His kingdom's sake, and we we know that we ourselves do not have those gifts and abilities. We understand that. We cannot imitate those we just can't imitate those. I can do a fair imitation of Martin Lloyd-Jones, but I don't have his gifts. My dear friends. I can even I- I- imitate Eric Alexander, and at one time in my preaching career, people said I was doing that regularly But uh, from the pulpit when I was preaching, but I didn't have his gifts. Extraordinary people. That's not what he says. And then there are those who have been time-specific in certain aspects of their life. You better not copy a Puritan preacher in the 21st century, or we would still have another maybe two or three hours to go in this sermon. (laughs) There are things time-specific because they lived in a particular place and time and the third thing is that there were sinful things in their lives as well i want specifically to use an example here this morning and i do so with great caution but nonetheless i do so because it may help us george whitfield george whitfield was america's first celebrity He was known throughout all the colonies. He collaborated with uh, Ben Franklin, gave him a college that he'd started, which ended up being the University of Pennsylvania. Whitfield's statue, in fact, is still there in the University of Pennsylvania to this day. He was a preacher. Under him, the great awakening happened in both Old England and New England in fact, up and down the eastern seaboard of the United States. He crossed the Atlantic thirteen times, quite an achievement at that period of history. Saw countless people come to Christ. It was an amazing ministry. He had an amazing ministry even to the, uh, the Africans who were laboring in the fields, who came in vast numbers to hear him preach and were converted under his Ministry. He founded an orphanage in Bethesda, a Bethesda mor- or orphanage just outside uh, Savannah. Been and looked at where that orphanage was. Had several hundred orphans. Orphans, by the way, were one of the biggest problems of that period, social problems of that period. Ben Franklin was so impressed that although he's historically known for his meanness, he gave Whitfield 75 pounds to help with the orphanage work, which was a lot of money in those days. He preached against the mistreatment of slaves. He was also against the slave trade. But he retained slaves for the work of his orphanage. He even suggested to the governor of Georgia that he should make slave-owning legal in Georgia because uh, the northern to northern to Georgia, South Carolina, was a slave-owning slave colony. And the problem among the problems was, of course, that people in Georgia were getting slaves but were under no controls in how they treated them and so on that was a great sin. That was a great sin. And when we look back at people like that, we think to ourselves, he is a great and godly man. You read his letters, read his devotional life, you will be moved to the core of your being by it. And yet here were these things. were unconscionable to us today. Well, I wonder how you should think about George Whitfield. And so, because I'm a white man, I'm not going to tell you. I have I have another witness that I need to bring to you today. Her name is Phyllis. Phyllis took her second name Wheatley from her master. George Whitfield died when she was seventeen. By that stage, she had been nine years an indentured slave, taken away from her family in Africa. Phyllis Wheatley became the first African-American female poet in America. When she was 17... She wrote on Whitfield's death an elegy to Whitfield that was published in every major paper throughout the colonies. It's an outstanding piece of work. She captures Whitfield's voice and his passion in her writing. He prayed that grace in every heart might dwell. He longed to see America excel. He charged its youth to let the grace divine arise and in their future actions shine. He offered that he did himself receive. A greater gift not God himself can give, he urged the need of him to everyone. It was no less than God's co-equal Son. And then she starts preaching. Take him, ye wretched, for your only good. Take him, ye starving souls, to be your food. Ye thirsty, come to his life-giving stream. Ye preachers, take him as your joyful theme. Take him, my dear, dear Americans, he said, Be your complaints in his kind bosom laid. Take him, ye Africans, he longs for you. Impartial Savior is his title due. If you will choose to walk in grace's road, you shall be sons and kings and priests." To God. Phyllis Wheatley was enabled as a 17-year-old girl in her slavery to see beyond something that was terrible and to recognize the faith. That's all the writer tells us to do, imitate the faith, That's what she does in this poem. She is preaching the gospel to the American colonies. And she's pointing them to the Savior. And she's offering them Christ. And she's encouraging her own people that they will be kings and sons and priests to God. She's laying a foundation in her writing for the emancipation of the human spirit as she preaches the gospel to people. Whitfield died in 1770. His close friends, John Newton and others, John Wesley being one of them, within a couple of years of his death, became the great advocates of uh, ending slavery. Throughout the world. Within 12 years of his death, slavery was abolished in the British Empire. I like to think perhaps Whitfield would have come to see things in that light, but I don't know. All I do know is that George and Phyllis had a good conversation when they all got to heaven in the end. Phyllis is an example to us, isn't she? Imitate their faith. You will find something wrong with every one of us. You will find things about us you do not like. You will find things about us you should not like. But imitate the faith of those who have gone before, that in our day, and for the generations to come, there will be those who will imitate us and others And will follow us as we follow Jesus. And may Jesus, in his mercy, close the eyes of future generations to our sins. That only he gets the glory in our lives. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that... Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Lord Jesus who was sufficient for Phyllis Wheatley. The Lord Jesus that was sufficient for Dr. Boyce and Barnhouse and C.H. Spurgeon and my own minister, John Marshall Dines. to give us your word and to leave us a legacy of faith. We give you our heartfelt thanks. Help us to learn from them and to so live our lives of faith that others watching us might themselves imitate it for future generations. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.